Good morning. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, Mark is gone. He was at a conference last weekend, and uh, last week, and he's in transition into vacation this week. So we'll be praying for him and his family. Uh, would you pray with me as we get started this morning? Father, may your spirit continue to move in worship as we preach your word. And I pray that no one would leave here remembering what I say, but would remember what you've laid on their hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been to a place called Chuck E. Cheese? I don't know if, if uh, what, what came to mind when I said Chuck E. Cheese, the restaurant franchise that their goal is to allow kids to be a kid, right? That's their phrase. You've seen the commercials. I'm sure many of you have experienced Chuck E. Cheese in one sense. When I was a small child, it was showbiz pizza. But the same, the same type of purpose, just a, a place where kids can come in and have a good time and play a bunch of games and get wild and crazy. But if you haven't been there, let me try to explain the experience uh, <laughs> a little bit. Um, maybe some of you, a headache comes to mind when you think of temperatures. <laughs> in our home, it's, this place is used as uh, an opportunity to encourage our girls toward a certain behavior or maybe a reward for them. We don't get there often. Um, talked to somebody last night, and they said, once a year. We go to Chuck E. Cheese once a year, no more than that. Here's the experience that happens. Uh, yeah, did you see that photo? That was, uh, that's just crazy. That was online under Chuck E. Cheese, and uh, I don't know if I'd use that picture to, to promote my place of business. But, but uh, they look like they're having a little too much caffeine, having some fun. <laughs> Here's the experience. You come into the door of Chuck E. Cheese, and the restaurant is equipped to hold 100 people, and there's 300 people in there. And you come in, you get a stamp on your hand, a little fluorescent-type deal that allows you not to be taken out of the restaurant unless you're with your folks. And uh, you come in, and then you drop 30, 40, 50 bucks, depending on how much you want to give on some couple pizzas, and then uh, a bunch of tokens that look like this. But you take out the token, and it says, no cash value. You're thinking, what did I just do? I just spent... And so your kids um, then take these, and you can too, and you go and you play games. And through the course of your experience there, the goal is to have fun and have a good time and experience joy and a place where you can be a kid all over again. And and yet, somehow, in the mystery of this experience, all this fighting takes place and crying and tears and, and there aren't enough tickets and the goal is to, for every game you play, if you do well, you get a certain number of tickets. And then you can cash those tickets in at a counter. Um, and you can spend, you know, you end up spending 20 bucks on an eraser. And it's all said and done. Right? And then, then there's only enough for two erasers, and you got three kids, and so you got to cut the eraser in half. And, and this, is, this is supposed to be a wonderful experience. This is something the kids have been looking forward to for weeks, to go to Chuck E. Cheese. So the counter, you get up to the counter, and there's 150 people at the counter, and there's one clerk. And kids are holding up their ticket. Can you count how many, what, do I ha- what can I get for this? And, and you feel for the person behind the counter. But think about, I don't know if you went for the first time, or maybe you brought your child for the very first time into that place. There was a certain mystery. There was a certain wonder. They walked in, and they were amazed by the games, and and they got these tunnels now that I got kicked out of crawling through one time <laughs> that you can do. And, 
And uh, just that mystery, that excitement. There was a little bit of risk, maybe a little bit of fear. Sometimes this mouse mascot, Chuck E. Cheese, I mean, scares kids to death. Some kids, like my oldest, run up and won't let go of this, this mouse's leg. I mean, just hold on and wants to follow him around all night. And other kids are just petrified. You know, they take one look and um, there's a risk. There's a certain mystery. And if I can, if you let me this morning, let me share with you some similarities between Chuck E. Cheese and the church. Okay? <laughs> you can tell somebody later on, your neighbor, yeah, we learn how the church is like Chuck E. Cheese. But it, it kind of is. Because there are some people that, that don't want to go to church. You say church and it's automatically a headache comes to mind. Yeah, I know it's supposed to be a good place. It's supposed to be a place where people love each other and they have a good time and there's a lot of fellowship, a lot of fun things going on there. But, but I've been there before. Maybe, maybe your experience was such that um, you, know, you were hurt or there's some bitter feelings. Maybe you were taken advantage of in the church at one point. You, you, church asked you to do too much. Um, what are some other experiences maybe that, that took place where the thought today in society is the church, although it's supposed to be a place of love and grace and forgiveness, that's not really what I've experienced in, in my life. That's church getting a bad rap. And so a lot of people today are saying, I don't need the church. I have my relationship with God. I'm good there, but I don't need the church. I can do this thing called Christianity on my own. And there's a lot of people saying that. And, um, and I want to make the case today um, for us to be able to recapture the mystery and the wonder of this thing that God calls the church. For us to really understand why is it important and why do we need it. A lot of people may say, I don't need the church because it's full of broken people. It's messy. There's a lot of people crying, shouting when things are broken. And I want to make the case today We need the church because it's full of broken people like us. And in order to do that, we have to look at a passage of Scripture where Paul talks about the church. Who are we? We're on this series called, Who Are We? Mark's been taking us through the book of Ephesians. And it's interesting to first note, the title of the series is not What We Do. Okay? It's, It's really important to understand. It's not what we do. It's who are we? Who does God call us? And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 3. This passage was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, It was written in about 60 A.D., about 30 years or so after the death of Christ. And uh, Paul, is his goal is to teach these churches uh, what it means to be a church. And why why is Paul writing this? If we we look at verse 1, it says, For this reason, I, Paul... Just stop right there before we even get any further. Paul makes it very clear. He wants them to know this, this is authentic. This is coming from Paul. Why, why is Paul the voice on the church? Well, a couple of things to point out. Um, every church doctrine that we have today as a church, every major church doctrine comes from the Pauline epistles or comes from the letters of Paul, every one of them. So he can speak on what, it, on what the church is. That's the first thing. Later on, later on in the Bible, there's this book called Revelation. And there's seven churches that Jesus speaks to, seven churches throughout Asia Minor. 
And every one of those churches were founded under the teachings and the leadership of Paul. Paul can speak on this subject. He's going to give some other, other things that we can say, yeah, he's credible. He can speak on this. For this reason, I, Paul. Paul also had a relationship with the group in Ephesus, these people called Ephesians. They, he had a relationship with them. He spent about three years living with them, so he knew them. And so when he says that, oh, yeah, we know Paul. Now, this letter was circulated to some other churches, but primarily written, written to, um, to Ephesus. And he says he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner of who? He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And it's interesting. He's a prisoner. could have said, I'm a prisoner of the Roman government. It's believed that he was in Rome in prison for the preaching of the gospel that went against Roman law at the time. And so he was taken to Rome, and he was awaiting uh, to the trial with Nero. So he's in Rome, and he says, I'm a prisoner, not of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of Nero. I'm not a prisoner of this particular jail in which I'm in. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's important, because he understands his purpose. His purpose isn't is to glorify Christ and fulfill what God has asked him to do, and for him is to, to preach and teach. First little point this morning. Um, number one, understand your purpose. When you understand your purpose, it's a little bit easier to un- endure the hardship, the trials. Now, most of us probably won't ever have to sit in a jail because of our faith. But identifying with the cross is costly. Okay? Let me say that again. Identifying with the cross is costly. If we're considering ourselves Christians this morning, then we're identifying ourselves with this cross, this person called Christ. And it's costly. And it's not optional. Okay? It's costly, but it's not optional. It's not something you can choose. Either you identify with the cross or you don't. And so the question for us this morning is, Paul is a prisoner of Christ. What's costing us to be able to identify with the cross? In some way, it should be costing us something. Maybe a relationship. Maybe a job. Maybe, maybe I don't know. What is it for you? What's it costing you to follow Christ? He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Why? Why is he in jail? For the sake of you Gentiles. Okay? Now, he pauses there. There's this word Gentiles, and, and we spent some time last week looking at this in chapter 2. Well, who's a Gentile? We're going to talk about Jews and Gentiles. Now, for us here, that's, that's far off. We really don't understand that language, but this was huge. So who are we talking about this morning? We talk about Jews. Well, let me just say, define a little bit here. From the beginning of time, creation, to the time of Abraham, you have everybody's a Gentile. Okay, you could call them pagans or... Bible calls them different things. They're all Gentiles, okay? Different groups of people, all Gentiles. Even Abraham was a Gentile. He's the father of the Jews, but he was a Gentile. God comes to him. So now we have from Abraham to Christ, you have Jews, two, two groups of people. You have Jews, the descendants of Abraham, and everybody else, okay, who are Gentiles. Okay? Now, today, we have from the church age to present, you have three groups of people. You have non-believing Gentiles, non-believing Jews, and then you have this thing we're going to talk about today, this really mysterious institution called the church. And in this church, you have believing Jews, 
and you have believing Gentiles. So just a little definition. I know that helps me sometimes when I'm going through a passage. Just some definitions here. Who are we talking about? So he, he comes to this word Gentiles. and Now Paul's ready to jump into a prayer. He's ready to start praying for the Gentiles. But before we pray for the Gentiles, he's, got to, he's going to teach us why. Why do we need to pray for the Gentiles? Some of you have a little hyphen in your Bible there, or a comma, or a semicolon, or something. Paul has a little ADD moment here. Okay, he gets sidetracked. He has a, wait a minute, that, that word, i got to tell you something, which reminds me, um, how many ADD kids does it take to change a light bulb? Want to ride bikes? <clears throat> so in theater, it's called an aside. There's just this, this break in the action here for a moment. And he says, wait, let me, let me teach you about something here. This thing called Gentiles. I, I, I want to explain it to you. And we're going to um, jump in to verse 2 and 3 now. Jump down. What, what's he going to describe? Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace. That was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. Okay, so he's going to explain something here. This administration of grace. In some translations, it's a really big church word. I don't even want to get into it, but it's important. It's called dispensation in some versions of the Bible. But basically all it is, is it's a change in economy. Okay, remember Chuck E. Cheese? When you come in, uh, they have their own economy going on at Chuck E. Cheese. Okay, your quarters don't work in their games. They've changed the entire economy at Chuck E. Cheese. All right? They control it. There's a new economy. And, and Paul says here, there's a new economy that's coming. I'm going to reveal it to you. There's something really big that's going to happen. And it's, I don't know, I don't know, like these coins get stuck in all our money at home. And sometimes you're trying to find quarters and you buy a pop and you've got one of these and it doesn't work. Right? You stick it in there and it gets jammed and it doesn't work. And that's what's happening here. Paul's saying Every, everything's going to change. Making sacrifices isn't the currency anymore. It's changing. There's a new currency. Um, this idea of mystery that he's going to unveil. Now there's a lot of things that are mysterious in the Bible. It says God works in mysterious ways, right? And there's a lot of things that I wish I knew about God. Personally, in my personal life, I wish he could explain some things. Um, and, then, and then biblically, too. There's some, some stories. I'm like, I don't quite get that. God, could you peel back the curtain a little bit? Maybe in your life, you wish you could see the future a little bit. Help me understand what's going on here. And there was a guy in the Old Testament. His name was Job. And he asked God that question. He says, God, help me understand something here. Could you just help me understand? And God, you know what God says? He says, I can't, because you weren't there when I created the universe. You weren't there when I flung the stars into space. You weren't there, so even if I tried, you wouldn't be able to understand. I think that's helpful for us this morning, for us at Door Creek Church to fall on our face this morning and say, God, we don't know. We know very little. In fact, we don't know anything in comparison to you and what you know and how great the wisdom and the knowledge that you have for us. We can't. We can't begin to understand Yet, he says, there's one thing I want you to know. There's one mystery that I am going to reveal to you. We're going to be blessed enough to know what that is. Paul's going to open that up. There's some personal ministries of mine that 
Um, but every once in a while I think about one mystery is I, I'm com- constantly amazed that I can feed 100 high school kids on four pizzas and two bottles of generic soda. Right? That's a, that's a mystery that I have. It's a mystery to me how well, some nights I'm given a lesson and it's awful. All right? I'll just be flat out honest. It's awful. And there's cell phones going off and uh, there's noises being made and people are walking all around. And yet it's a mystery to me how then afterwards some kid can come up to me and say, thanks, God spoke to me tonight. I'm like, I don't know what that was. I, okay, it wasn't me. That's a mystery to me. It's a mystery to me how I can have a conversation with a student who's, who's going on the missions trip and really, really struggling with money. I don't think I can go on this mission trip. And then over here, there's a, an individual in the church who's feeling called that the Holy Spirit's working on them to give to this trip. And so this week, it's a mystery to me how an individual in the church can write the full amount for this girl to go to Guatemala with us this summer, anonymously. That's a mystery. That's cool. I want to be a part of that. There's some mysteries that Hannah Savage is going to, God's been doing in her life. She's going to come and share a story of grace I'm, and she's going to share a little bit about this mystery called church. Hello, I'm Hannah Savage. I am a junior at Monona Grove High School. Um, I've been at Door Creek since before I was born. Um, and I was raised in a Christian home, a wonderful Christian home. I became a Christian when I was four years old. Um, I've been living that ever since. And it's been ups and downs. Um, I think a turning point for me, though, was going into high school. Um, in eighth grade, I decided I was kind of fed up with doing this God thing because things weren't going my way. So I made some choices, and I changed the way I was living. And going into freshman year, I realized that I needed to re-change what I was doing and get back focused on God. So my freshman year was a year of readjusting. And it was kind of a year of isolation. It was just me and God. And I had a lot of experiences that I could share that are terrific, but in planning what I was going to say today, I couldn't really think of anything. I set my mind at figuring this out weeks ago. Um, I prayed, and I was confident that God would tell me exactly what to say in his own perfect timing. And as the weeks rolled on, his timing started to seem progressively less perfect. Um, I wasn't worried, though. I thought... Well, God will show me. So I kept praying, but my prayer sort of changed over time. It started out as, oh, God, thank you for this opportunity. Please give me something to say that will bless your name. And it sort of morphed into, okay, God, this isn't funny anymore. Can you please give me something to say? Um, But I thought, well, maybe he already showed me what I'm supposed to say, and I just didn't see it. So I looked back in all my memories, and I was trying to pull something out. Um, looking for that five-minute-long golden nugget of spiritual insight that I could just pull out and share. But just nothing was coming to me. Um, Well, the other night I was talking with a friend of mine um, about a challenge that I've been facing lately, and it's been going on for a while. And he knew about this long-standing challenge, and he also knew that I was trying to come up with something to say today. So he suggests to me, well, why don't you share this story for the stories of grace? And I sort of laughed, and I said... Well, I would, but I'm still waiting for the grace part to come through. I can't share this story that doesn't have an ending yet. That wouldn't make any sense. And he sort of looked at me and said, why? And I didn't really know what to say other than, well, I can't share a story that doesn't have an ending. That doesn't make sense. I have to have a lesson to share before I can share it. 
But as I was driving home that night, I was thinking about it more, and I realized that I was really wrong, that my perspective was completely off. Um, I always get so focused on looking for a conclusion. Um, I think that's why I like movies so much. I can put the movie in, I can watch it, I can see the beginning to the end, and it wraps up nice and pretty at the end, and I can just turn it off, and I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't have to think about what would happen next. And I crave that often in my own life. I want an end to the story so I can move on. Um, one of my favorite songs talks about this. It's called Love Me Good by Michael W. Smith. And one of the lines in it says, Sometimes I wish I were in a movie or some 70s TV thing where everything gets neatly wrapped by the end of the show. Yeah, but this ain't Hollywood and this sure ain't the Brady Bunch. And how this part's going to open out, I don't really know. And personally, I, I identify a lot with that lyric because I get frustrated by not knowing the end. So I spend all my time focusing on the conclusion, and that beautiful conclusion that God is weaving for me somewhere beyond my feeble field of vision. And that conclusion just never seems to come. I wait and pray and pray and wait to the point of tears, and I just feel hopeless. Sure, God is there, and sure, he loves me, but all I need right now is a conclusion. Where I'm at right now, I just need a conclusion. One little conclusion is all that I need, God. Why can't you just give me this? And, well, I can't pretend to know why God does what he does, but I did have this idea. Maybe I'm stuck in this trial because he's waiting for me. He's waiting for me to stop thinking about the conclusion to come and start looking around me. I'm grateful for the trials that God brings me through because of that one word, through. I know that when I'm through with the trial, I can look back on it and learn a lesson from it. But I didn't realize that my lesson could be wrapped up inside the trial. I was too focused on an ideal conclusion to see what the purpose of the trial was. At a time in my life when I'm, I'm swimming in conflicts and tests and challenges and trials, and I'm tied up in all of my loose ends, I needed to be reminded that I don't need the conclusion to learn a lesson. Even if it's not a fairy tale story, it's still worth telling. So here I stand. I never got my neat little story with a pretty conclusion. I never got my golden nugget of spiritual insight. I realized that that's perfect. God is perplexing and baffling, and that is perfect. I may live my entire life without ever having that satisfying conclusion, and that's perfect too because I can rest easy knowing that God knows the conclusion, and that's good enough. God is mysterious. I hope you understand what Hannah was saying there. Our, our relationship with Christ, sometimes we don't understand. It's mysterious. Help us, God, to recapture the wonder and the mystery of your church. The word that Paul is using here is mystery. Let me give you a little definition for it. The definition of mystery is that it's the truth and knowledge only by divine revelation. And it's a private, wise plan of God. So it's not this mystery like we think of in terms of a modern-day whodunit, like with a book or a movie or um, like when I was filling out my brackets a couple weeks ago. That's a mystery. Nobody knows. Okay? Nobody knows. It's all a guess. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about here in this plan, 
Somebody knows, and somebody's been working on this plan since the beginning of time, before the foundation of the earth. This plan has been in place. The only difference is now it's going to be revealed. After all this time, after 5,000 years or more, it's going to be revealed. The word is mentioned 27 different times in the New Testament, defining 11 different mysteries. And this word, um, if I can help explain what this word means a little bit, when my wife and I first got to know each other uh, in college, we were going to school in, in Chicago, I got to know her, um, we were friends, okay, that awkward stage, not boyfriend, girlfriend, you're just kind of friends. And my wife, it was Valentine's Day, it was the first day that, um, date, date, Valentine's Day was the first time, am I okay? There we go, take it off. Um, so the, she goes out on a limb this day, Valentine's Day. And uh, <clears throat> she goes out on a limb by doing all these really nice things for me throughout the day. Like she baked cookies and put them at where I worked, little bag of cookies with a nice note. Um, she found my jacket outside the cafeteria and stuck some things in the jacket. That surprised me that way. Um, she left some things in the campus postal mailbox, post office area. And I found those. And and every time she's thinking, I don't know what he's got planned tonight. And as I would talk to her, I, I, I basically say, I don't have anything planned. Um, what do you want to do tonight? Do you want to go out? Okay, well, okay. So each time I saw her, she's feeling like, oh, I blew it. I really went, went out on a limb here, and he doesn't even have anything planned tonight. And so I had a plan. All right? It wasn't time to reveal it yet to her. I wanted to surprise her. And so as we go out, the last conversation, I just like, what do I wear? You know, I'm like, whatever you want. You know, nothing special here. And so she's like, oh, she really, you know, blew it. Um, anyway, I had this plan. We met, and I had connected with a friend of mine on her floor who was a missionary aviation major. And uh, he was getting his Bible done, but he was a pilot. And he had a, rented a plane on Miggs Field, which is the airstrip. Um, that's no longer there, right on, right on the lake, Miggs Field, downtown Chicago. And... Um, there we go. There we go. I'm sorry. Pack this thing in. There we go. Don't wear a necklace next time I preach. <laughs> Note to self. Okay. Next time, yeah. It may not be next time. All right, I'm trying to tell a story here. This... So... I connected with this guy. I'm like, could you help us out? This is a little win-win situation. I give you a little money for some fuel, and you got to fly anywhere to get your hours in. So let's, could you fly Crystal and I up around the city on Valentine's night? So we go to the airport. Crystal still doesn't know what's going on. We drive. She's like, what are we doing at the airport? I'm like, well, sometimes it's cool just to watch planes take off. And it's kind of romantic to do that. <laughs> and the guy is 20 minutes late, so I'm, still, I'm making up stuff. We're sitting there. She's like, this guy is really weird. And uh, so then he comes running, and sorry I'm late, and we get in the plane, we fly around the city, we go to another airport, we have dinner on the runway, and we come back, and uh, it was a clear night, beautiful, beautiful date. Uh, haven't been able to, to recapture that moment since. Um, it's been downhill since then. That's the meaning of the word here, revealing a plan, a plan that's been in, in action, maybe a surprise party that you've thrown for somebody. Maybe taking them to Chuck E. Cheese. A party. You, you reveal it to them at the, just the right time. Verses 4 and 5. He's going to explain this mystery a little bit. 
In in reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which is not made known to men in other generations and has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. He still hasn't told us what the secret is, but he's told us a little bit more about it. He's saying nobody has known about this. No one in the Old Testament. This is a completely new economy. All right? A new plan of grace. Now, we can, we can deduct from that that it's, he's not talking about salvation. Because in the Old Testament, Gentiles came to saving faith. Right? Uh, we, I mean, we see Rahab in the line of Christ as a Gentile. We see other Gentiles who aren't Jews coming to faith. So that's not the secret. But he's saying even the prophets who wrote this book had no idea, all right, had no idea of what the secret is, all right? Let's continue on then. What, what is the secret? Verse 6, I'm going to camp here for a, for a couple minutes. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery. For us, you may be thinking, what's... What's the big deal here? I don't, I don't get it. It's hard for us to understand. For 5,000 years, the Jews had been told that they are God's chosen people. Nobody else, just them. And they have all these promises given to them just for the Jews. All right? Now, Paul comes along and says, no, it's different. Something's about to change. And this change is called the church. It's what we are. We are a part of this mystery. We're now the Gentiles, not just, they can't just come to saving faith. More than that, they are on an equal level, equal playing field with the Jews. They are in the same position that a Jewish person had as a God's chosen people, now a Gentile has. And the Gentiles aren't entering into the Jewish plan. It's a whole new economy. The currency is being changed. This whole new environment called the church. And there's a lot here in verse 6. Later on this week, you want to spend some time, and you can just break this down. We are heirs together with Israel. Now, just a side note here. We're not talking about Israel in the Old Testament. There are promises given to Israel, and God, is still, God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. But what we are saying is there are promises given to the Jewish people. The promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That now applies to us. All these promises in the Old Testament... All right, this new economy, this new dispensation. The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. What's that mean? Well, it says, it says that Christ is God's heir, right? And it also says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Christ owns everything, so we can say we as the church own everything right now by trust in Christ. By heirs, we are managers and stewards and brokers, however you want to say it, of what Christ has given us. One day it will be in reality. We will own, literally own with Christ and reign with him. That's, I don't know about you. I get pretty excited about that. We're members together of one body. There's a lot that comes out of there. There's unity and diversity. Now, that's not the goal, but that's a healthy byproduct of what it means to be a healthy church. Every different background, every different socioeconomic class, uh, every different there may be a lot of different beliefs on different things, but the common denominator is Jesus Christ. And then we share together in all the promises of Christ. There's a lot of those promises that you know, we just don't have time to get into. But it basically breaks down to this, if I can speak to you personally for a moment. 
If you're, if you're a follower of Christ, if you've put your faith, if you're a member of the church, you have value this morning. You have significance. You have worth. And God views you as perfect. That is your position this morning. Not based on what you do, but on who you are. Position this morning that God's looking at us and has granted us is a perfect position before him. That's verse 6. New economy. Verses 7 through 9. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Here's Paul saying, although I'm the least of all God's people. This is Paul, the apostle. We would probably disagree with that. He's the least? No, he's pretty significant. Look at all he did. But he's saying, when you come to the cross, you'll never be the same again. And to be able to have this, Paul, he, he could have been arrogant, could have been proud here. And he says, you know, let me show you this little visual here. A lot of us see uh, up here, see two eyes, right? And we're looking at that, two eyes, and, and we think of I, myself. And yet, when you come to the cross and you see the cross for the first time, you're always going to see the cross. And Paul here, that's basically what he's saying. I've come to the cross. I've received the grace of God, and now I'm always going to see it. In all my writings, that comes forth. Let's move on. 7 through 9, verses 10 and 11. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This secret, he says, has been planned since the beginning of time. Eternity past, God had this plan. It wasn't plan B. This wasn't like, oh no, the Jews rejected my son, I've got to come up with another plan. No, this, was, this plan was to include you. It was to include you in, in all the promises that he's given. What's this whole idea of that we are to display the manifold witness of God, wisdom of God? This is really cool if you stop and think about it. He's talking about the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. He's talking about angels and demons here. Angels and demons in the universe, this cosmic universe, who are not a part of the church. You think about that? And they're watching this whole church thing going on. We are displaying the wisdom of God. Let me give you an example. When we sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, I once was lost and now I'm found, an angel can never sing that song. Okay, they could sing it, it doesn't apply to them. Because they've lived in a glorified state all along. Only the church has experienced what it means to be lost and now found. What it means to be brought before God rightly. So, that verse is saying the whole universe is watching the church. We are the display of His glory this morning. The church, as messed up as we are, as broken as we are, as many bad mistakes that we make, and people are like, that's, that's the church? Now, don't look at what we do. Look at who we are. Look at who we are, our identity and our mission. Verses 10 and 11. 12 and 13, we jump to, what's our role this morning? Well, just real quickly, with much grace comes much responsibility. I think our lesson can be learned from Paul. We are we're not to keep this secret hidden. It's only called a mystery now because that's what it's been known as for, for generations past. But now it's to be proclaimed and shared to every neighbor in Madison, every, everyone. It's no longer a mystery It's no longer our goal to be here, a little holy huddle or a club. It's to share this message, 
to invite everyone that you know, that God's inviting them to be part of this thing called the church. I hope some small way this morning I've recaptured the mystery of the church for you. Yeah, it, it can be a messy place. People can be crying and things not going right and it's easy to complain and point things out and maybe your experiences in church haven't been pretty. But can you be encouraged this morning that God calls you an heir with him. Joint heir with him one day. The institution, there's three in, in Scripture. There's the family first, and then God institutes government, and finally institutes this thing called the church. And I would say the church is the greatest of all three of those. There's a lot of blessings given. The church will last forever and ever. No matter what we do to break it down, it's okay. Take, you can trust God. His church is going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. You are part of something significant, greater than any nation, any organization, any, any peace treaty, any uh, European Union that's ever come along, you're greater than anything because you're part of the church. If I can just share something with you a little bit this morning, I'm just going to read a list of what God calls us, his body, the church this morning. God calls Door Creek Church the body of Christ. God calls Door Creek Church his cornerstone. He calls this church a building upon Christ. We're not talking about the physical building here this morning. I hope, I hope you know that. We're talking about a group of people. If the building were to leave, if youth ministry does something stupid this week and burns the building down, it shouldn't change who we are as a church. He calls us his family, Christ's flock, his temple, his permanent dwelling place. Door Creek Church is a royal priesthood this morning. And we are the bride of Christ. You specifically, if you've put your faith in Christ as a member of the church, you are God's elect. You are blameless. You are God's chosen. You are a fellow heir with him. You belong to God. You are a saint. You're set apart. You are holy. You are in Christ. You're his disciple. You're his member. You're a follower. You're select. You're redeemed. You're brought with a price. You're paid for. You're loved. You're washed. You're privileged to go confidently before the throne. You're remembered before the throne. You're represented by our mediator. You're recipients of this thing called mystery this morning. There's a lot more. If we have time, we can keep going on. You are blessed, church. You are blessed. Your position before God is perfect. You... Lord, hallelujah! Amen. You can stand before God any time, day or night. You can come before Him confidently, not, not in arrogance or priest presumption that he's going to do something for you, but you can come before the throne at any time with your request. And then Paul begins his prayer. And we're going to look at this prayer next week. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, we scream out hallelujah this morning. Thank you for our position. That it's not based on who, what we've done. It's based on who we are. And that comes from your proclamation, our position in you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the price that Christ paid for his bride. Amen.